this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Contra.Scot. Very glad today to be joined by Jay Sutherland. Uh, who is a final year student at Strathclyde University and a member of that university's Student Solidarity Group. Jay, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I was interested to speak to you after I read an article you wrote about political activism at Strathclyde. Uh, I was at Strathclyde many Mm. years ago and remembered time before the sort of um, politicisation of campuses uh, during the student movement before Corbynism, before the anti-austerity movement, before the Scottish independence movement. So obviously dating my time there somewhat. And just how dead campus politics was at the time and just how much the student union was dominated by the most apolitical type of kind of centrist uh, careerists and so on. And it just gave me, your article gave me a bit of a, a blast from the past. Describe for me the political mood at Strathclyde University right now. Yeah, well, just before I do that, just as you were saying, you went to Strathclyde, and I know a lot of people in the Scottish left, they had their kind of educational experience at Strathclyde, and it came to be known at one point as the most kind of lefty student union in Scotland at one point, and the most important. I mean, there was a running joke that said, he who holds Strathclyde holds Scotland, that being like the most amount of NUS presidents came from Strathclyde and it's in reference to the whole kind of old saying of he holds Stirling holds Scotland so it was definitely a kind of powerful position to be in student politics if you consider student politics important Um, but for years now I mean unions have been obsessed with optics I mean Strathclyde is a big example of this I mean politics at Strathclyde simply means now having your pronouns on a name tag that's mandatory or gender neutral toilets or all these kind of cupcake sale kind of things that result in activism. And that's what they define as activism. I mean, Strathclyde prides itself on being the most politically correct university on everything. Um, And what I'm trying to say is they never tackled issues at the root of the problem. So for example, Instead of saying they want to tackle um, misogyny, they they would say, okay, we need to have a bake sale. We can't pay our female cleaners equal pay. You know, they, they don't really know how to look at issues in a systemic way at all. And that leads us to these events, which I was talking about during the wave of industrial action across the UK in November last year you know, that Unite and the UCU both walked out uh, a lot of Scottish universities and universities across the UK. Like, I just got another blast from the past there because, I mean, we think a lot of this stuff is very recent. Um, mm. But when I was at Strathclyde University more than 15 years ago, the the campaign for a gender-neutral toilet was underway then. Really? <laughs> so it's weird to find out. Yeah. Uh, mm. that that much hasn't changed yeah, and among yeah. the kind of I don't know what you'd say this kind of serious activist left on campus that kind of stuff was sort of considered a joke then it was considered I would say it comes in waves though I mean when I was in first year we had Matt Crilly 
um, who was without uh, one of the best presidents in Scotland, quite left, but he knew how to handle himself. He knew how to, at the one hand, chat to senior management in a productive way, but still keep links with radical activists on campus. I mean, when we occupied the John Anderson building, the lecture hall, he would sit down in the occupation with us. Such a far cry from now, obviously. Yeah, so um, obviously these days there's quite an unprecedented degree of industrial action on university campuses across Britain, uh, including in Scotland. Um, the UCU focuses a lot of uh, attention for reasons perhaps good and bad. But besides the UCU, there are also um, other unions on strike mm -hmm. at universities, um, often for kind of uh, non-academic staff as well as academic staff. Could you just tell us about the uh, industrial disputes at Strathclyde? Well, there's the main one of the UCU, and that's a kind of historic one of the the campaign that they ran for their five fights, I think it was. And they've been holding industrial action every year since I've been at uni. And then on the other hand, well, they, they go on strike over pay and workload and conditions, and they are everyone above level six in academia. So everyone who's involved in some kind of way with academia. It doesn't need to be a professor. It could be learning support staff. I mean, it's terrible that it's put in this way, but everyone under them, so under level six, so the kind of more hidden roles at university that keep it ticking along, like janitors, cleaners, catering staff, they're usually represented by Unite, at least at Strathclyde. And this wave of industrial action was very different because it wasn't just the UCU this time, it was also Unite went out at the same time. And it really shook things up on a scale where I've never seen it because the UCU, although they're very consistent and they're good at getting their ballot out year in, year out, but Unite really shook things up because it was the first time they'd been on strike in a while, or maybe for the first time ever at Strathclyde, I think. And they they really, really took things very seriously. I mean, they as soon as they were on the picket line, they wanted to go into buildings, create as much noise as possible. And their their fight was particularly over pay. Um, and they felt they were being very mistreated and unseen within the university. I mean, a lot of it was very personal as well, directed at Jim McDonald, the vice chancellor, whereas the UCU are very scared to touch on Jim's name because they work very closely with him and they obviously work closely with students. So they also don't want to quote unquote disrupt the student experience. Whereas Unite and the cleaners and the catering stuff, they don't they don't care, which in a way is very good because they're willing to take that extra risk. And they even disrupted exams and very controversial tactics that even I would say, well, wow, like I didn't expect this, you know. And to be honest, they got results. I mean, the UCU have been on strike every year for as long as I can remember. And I don't think they've got far at Strathclyde in, in their industrial action, whereas Unite, they went on strike for two days and they disrupted exams with very loud noises and horns. And I was there on that day and senior management walked out of the building and said, OK, OK, calm down, stop making noise, let's get back around the table. And the UCU have never been able to achieve that. Never, ever, ever in my years at Strathclyde. So it was quite a revelation. What form did uh, student solidarity with these strikes take? Well, we, we always had the um, position of unconditional support for the strike um, 
and it's always been that case. So the Students' Union at Strathclyde is a separate organisation from the university itself, although in recent years it's practically acted the same as the university, but in theory it's a separate organisation. The Student Union was moved, the main, the main changing point of this was the Student Union was moved from its own independent building into a kind of new commercialised area of the campus, and it kind of looks more like an Apple store than a union now. Um, there's no space at all to congregate at all. And um, we're left with very like kind of tacky cafes and burger restaurants. And there's a new student president who ran on a very depoliticized platform. Um, they kind of really wanted to water down any critical thought within the union and the university itself. Um, and this kind of accumulated in the student union reversing this years of unconditional support for the UCU and the strikes and it was a kind of statement of neutrality that came out so as a student group we always expected the union to be partly in support of the strikes we never expected anything amazing we didn't expect a kind of May 1960 revolution around the corner from the student union but at the very minimum we expected some kind of support so this was a big shock that they were going to be neutral on the strikes this year and so we got together and we proposed a motion against the current president and uh, student parliament. Um, and we were surprised. I mean, student parliament is a kind of relic at Strathclyde. It doesn't really exist. It exists only in name. Um, students can't even vote, which we only found out when we arrived. Um, and they kind of justified it in the way of students haven't been in because of COVID, students have been affected so much, kind of like from very quasi-left positions of education as a human right, therefore um, you can't choose one over the other. Um, but the most of all, I think, which drew, drew a lot of attention to our campaign was the kind of excuses which used identity politics at the core of their arguments against striking workers. We saw this time and time again at Strathclyde where identity politics was used to justify very, very reactionary positions. I mean, we heard that um, international students or uh, people of colour at the university don't feel safe on a picket line and or how can we have unconditional support for strikes? What if there is a strike that is racist or homophobic? Like really jaw-dropping stuff that like you couldn't even believe when you hear it, you know, and this was taken very seriously in a room to the point that we all started kind of laughing and we they were told, this is a safe space. You cannot say this in this room, you know? And even, even people in our group from the Greens and from the SNP, the very people who are identity into identity politics themselves were shocked at this. Yeah, so this is something that people have noted at campuses around the country in the last couple of years when there has been an uptick of, of strikes in, uh, on campuses. Mm. Um, for example, members of staff justifying crossing the picket lines on the basis of their race, saying that um, uh, going on strike is a white privilege. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. On. This was but, said to us. Also, um, you know, on, on the basis of class, saying, well, I come from a working class background, it's not so easy for me to go on strike and and so on. So these arguments have been quite widely dispersed. Um, I mean, I I suspect, I mean, what's, what's interesting is I did say earlier, we were talking about how these things come and go in waves. I mean, when I was at university, it was typical still for unions 
to refuse solidarity with striking staff. Didn't always happen. Mm. Sometimes students were able to fight for the union to get a better position. And what year were you at Strathclyde, David? Uh, that would have been about 2007, eight, something like that. Okay. Um, now, like I say, I mean, I think in the years intervening, it was much more common for student unions to, to back strike action. Yeah. But I just think, think think it's interesting that that wave having come and go, when the when unions would refuse to back striking staff when I was at university, they would do it in a very straightforward language of a kind of much more obviously right-wing language of yeah. um, students' interests, students' rights. You know, students students have yeah. are here for an education. It was all, an almost commercialized language, which of course universities are very commercialized yeah. now. But it's sort of we've well, in a way, something has changed because they've obviously yeah. gone smarter with how they do these things. They know that traditional right wing arguments won't go down with a kind of broad left student body. So I mean, at Strathclyde, this is a perfect example. Afterwards, we were accused by the student president Adam Morrow of disrupting a safe space, and he made this big long video with the background of a charity, a, mental, a men's mental health charity, essentially saying that us holding him to account was abusive and disrupting a safe space for minorities on campus. I then got an official complaint against me and other people. Uh, funnily enough, the complaint procedure couldn't go any further because the person handling the complaints was on strike. And <laughs> it just it kind of accumulated in a really big, like, embroiled online space and that's one thing i've noticed about people involved in identity politics is they are so embedded on online communities that when you actually face them up in person on an issue like this they don't know how to handle it they, they rely so much on online space and meme culture and kind of um, blog posts and how do you call them infographics to explain their points that when you ask them to explain an, a point critically. They really don't know how to do it, even for university students. Yeah, and I find the phenomenon interesting because, I mean, as you were saying at the start, it's um, student politics is not exactly, you know, the battle of ideas on a on a mm. on a global level, you know. Yeah, um, and if you think it is, then you're quite deluded. Yes, and and there are plenty of deluded people in student unions, but they also understand it's a launch pad, I suppose, into other yeah, forms of, course, of life. Of what is interesting about universities is um, they are key sites for the reproduction of of intellectual life, but also for the kind of cadres of major public institutions. So mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, civil society, you know. Uh, civil servants, um, politicians themselves, of course, journalists, academics themselves, um, leading figures in professions. All these people, of course, are churned out through the university system, many of them picking up these ideas as they go. Mm. So I suppose my question is, do you foresee, I mean, are these the people who are coming down the pipeline towards us, um, as it were, out of the kindergarten and into the world of work? Well, it's quite scary because when you think when you're a student, you're supposed to be at your peak of radicality. I and mean, it's all downhill from there, or people say it is at least. And if this is where a lot of students are at, at this point, what does that mean for the future? And obviously a lot of students, instead of like, say me or you, where we, our student experience was shaped by a kind of broad left consensus of a student body, and now it's shifted to identity politics. And 
although it describes the kind of matrix of oppression, as they say very accurately, it doesn't say why these issues exist on a fundamental level. And then when you actually ask people these fundamental questions, they cannot ask and they cannot answer it in any meaningful way. And I think within Western universities, we are witnessing IP being used to renew these kind of corporate agendas. But the thing is, people don't realize at all they're being used. So in the future, does that mean that they'll be able to be used even more? Well, I would, I would hope not, but I think that will be the case where there'll be a kind of emergence of people aligning with corporate identity and politics at the same time in a way that me or you would never have done so after university or during university. I mean, just last week, involving some of the research I was doing for my dissertation, I saw that a, a post on Twitter by an academic, and he was researching something similar to me involving identity politics and class politics. And he saw that Coca-Cola had actually funded many kind of race advocacy groups in the US to paint the sugar tax as historically racist. And it worked perfectly. I mean, you saw, I even remember during the summer of Black Lives Matter, you saw a lot of kind of infographics going up saying uh, to lose, uh, to say someone to lose weight is historically racist or the BMI scale was historically racist or um, dietary requirements, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it, just, it just screams to me, why don't people realise they're being used in this way that's so, so obvious? Because in a way you can say, oh yeah, the right are getting smarter or the corporate agenda is getting smarter because they know how to use people. But equally on our side, among other young people, it's like you spend all day in class being taught apparently how to think critically and you have no idea what's going on. It really, it really bothers me. It really baffles me. It's interesting that, um, I mean, you said earlier, you know, you know, even some of the Green and SNP students were, were shocked um, by this. But it did just get me thinking that there's almost no level of politics in Scotland now at which anyone could insert themselves, right? All the way from the Scottish Parliament, all the way down, as it were, to, um, you know, a, a student union at mm. a pretty run-of-the-mill university in Scotland. Uh, at every level that you try and show solidarity with workers or um, establish any kind of campaigning activity or challenge power at any level you're going to be countered now with the same accusations you're going to be countered with the claim of that you're infringing upon the rights or the interests or even the safety and perhaps principally the safety of people in kind of threatened minority groups mm. and i think with online spaces as well now i mean when you were involved in politics at a young age or in student politics twitter didn't exist so there was no way to go back and look on your search history and find out what you said 10 years ago or five years ago. So in a way, it's much easier for the political elite to vet people essentially as well. I mean, if you know about what happened with NUS in England, they had a student president who got elected democratically through their institution, through their student democracy, and she was completely removed from her role without any say simply because she posted a few tweets when she was 15 about Israel and Palestine. And yes, yeah, some of the language she used was questionable, but it could never have been accused of being fundamentally anti-Semitic. It was 
from her Muslim faith background. I mean, if, if you're into identity politics, then you could have argued it from that point of view as well. But they removed her completely from her role. And it just makes me think that they've become so good at the selection process for who gets into these very elite political roles that they expect people to start from a very young age and watch what they say. I mean, like, when I was 15, I don't know what I was tweeting, but I don't think you should be held accountable for it, you know? But in this mad world of selection, that's what matters now. Yeah, I dread to think what I was, what I would have tweeted if I had a Twitter account when I was 15. It's probably best that I didn't. Um, I mean, there's obviously a lot of debates, has been in, in past years. I kind of feel like on the left proper or on the kind of self-identifying political or socialist and activist left, debates around identity politics are kind of dying down because there's no um no one's in any, can be in any doubt anymore about what it's about i mean the, the experiences that you've described are now too <clears throat> common to any longer pretend that this is a mode of politics that has any kind of radical potential of any kind i think it's shifting more towards an international sphere of instead of domestic policy in terms of identity politics mattering i think it's now your position on Ukraine, your position on NATO, these kind of are the very pecking points which the political elite look to see if you're on side with them, or at least that's what it's like in student politics just now. It's what are you saying on this? What are you saying on that? And more common now, it's international issues that are popping up rather than domestic ones. That's interesting. I mean, I'm obviously a wee bit divorced from this. Um, is, there, is there a backlash among among activist students, like uh, people who are more in touch with a kind of um, Marxist or, or working class kind of sphere of activity or a Marxist kind of mode of thought? But again, it's it's the same tactics of identity politics that are being deployed that even people who are critical of, let's say, NATO are scared to talk about it. Now, even if you're on the far left, I mean, I was at a meeting at Glasgow Uni and someone had brought up the fact that the Ukrainian flag was put up at the university and how this was a very performative act of solidarity. And they asked people to write about it. And I'm telling you that all of these so-called Marxist groups or left groups, traditional student left groups, they they didn't want to say a word on it. So it's, it's, it's kind of being deployed as a fear tactic of, if you say this now, this will be used against you when you leave university. And Student politics has never been like that. So now that it's like this, there's a big culture of fear of what you'll say, and then people don't want to write, they don't want to explore their ideas, and it's really plaguing the left, at least the young left in Scotland, where they're not being allowed to develop their own writing and ideas on issues, and then hold their hands up in five years then and say, you know what, I was wrong, which I've done, I'm sure you've done as well, David, and that's how you learn, you know, like... But now you're expected to be almost perfect and ideologically pure on so many issues, even if you don't believe in them from a very young age. I have never been wrong. No, obviously I have. Um, but um, yeah, no, that that's really interesting that that kind of culture of, of fear exists. Let me ask you just finally in relation to this, because it seems to be a perennial debate. It was a debate when I was at university, but much more narrowly because the debate was over so-called no platform very mm. specifically for groups like the British National Party, right? So that was 
quite, quite a kind of long-standing attitude that people on the kind of um, fascist or kind of fascist heritage far right mm. shouldn't be given a platform because they'll use it to kind of spread violence and, and so on. Um, it seems to me that since then, I mean, in those days, even then, I mean, we're only talking about 15 years ago, no one would have said, and that should go further to anyone, for example, saying anything potentially offensive or just socially conservative or something like that. Yeah. Um, what's the status of the no platform debate now? I mean, my feeling is that it has kind of spread its tentacles <laughs> out a bit and sort of embraced just about anything anyone could potentially take offence to. Hmm. Well, I remember, I remember when I was very young when Nick Griffin went on Question Time and I remember thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is the BBC promoting fascist. We can't have this. And and I, I, I held this point of view for a very long time. And to some extent, when you're on the left, you naturally do. I mean, if you think you see a Nazi, you, you don't want them to be platformed. It's very much a partisan issue. And a non-partisan issue, so everyone should agree with this. But then I started to not change my mind, but have a more nuanced point of view that if you really want to tackle the issues that these people are saying and promoting, then the only way you're going to deal with them is if you, in a way, allow them to have a platform and then critique that platform and bring it down. I mean, it's Strathclyde again, using it as an example. A few years ago, we had a few anti-abortion groups that were popping up around campus and we all agreed on the kind of left that by all these people should be banned as a society and we got them banned as a society and then all they did was kind of go underground and promote themselves in the end of lectures or the kind of um, spaces where no one went and they grew even bigger and they kind of had this legitimacy of being a kind of underground student organisation so they kind of very kind of soft Christian attitudes of of the Christian people at university who hold anti-abortion views grew even stronger because these issues weren't dealt with. Instead of actually saying, okay, we'll put you on a platform and we'll debate with you and we'll destroy your point of view because we naturally think our point of view is more right or better. That, that wasn't considered the view at all. The view was these people can't be dealt with at all. But then you allow that kind of culture to fester underneath well behind closed doors in a way and i mean i fundamentally agree still with the idea that you shouldn't platform them but i think it's not a good way to go about things it only makes the situation worse okay um thanks very much for your your thoughts and all that um jay i know that um you and perhaps some other Strathclyde University students have been involved in the movement to save the high flats at the Wineford. Mm. Um, just briefly tell us about that campaign. Yeah, I think it's through the Wineford Residents Union. So essentially the the housing association with in combination with a private company called Wheatley want to bring down 600, well, they want to demolish 600 council houses or kind of socially rented houses and replace it, replace them with 300, I think, um, mid-market rent homes. And the kind of whole hypocrisy is around the environmental stuff mainly, as well as the class issues that are brought up by this, that these houses or these high-rise flats aren't even that out of date, you know. I mean, they're above the national average of energy insulation. 
they could easily be refitted and the whole issue of gentrification pops up if you knock down these flats and replace them with mid-market rents. It kind of extends the whole kind of West End bubble further into Mary Hill and then you've got Mary Hill is the kind of only part of the West End, if you consider it the West End, that is socially rented and not as expensive as the other areas. And then obviously, if you knock down these flats, gentrification will inevitably happen. So the residents are very up in arms. They're ready to use anything they have at their disposal to stop it from happening. And to be honest, it's the the most inspiring um, movement I've seen in Glasgow for a while of residents who aren't even who haven't been involved in politics who are ready to take up their arms and use them against the council against the private company that's involved in the demolition and against their own housing association and they're not scared of anyone in the process and like these are the kind of things you think of that you think oh it would be ideal if an occupation happened it would be ideal if you just could occupy a whole block of flats and then they actually did it so it was very amazing to see and i think it's drawn a lot of attention to the situation in glasgow with gentrification in particular i mean i know there's been a lot of attention on london and manchester so i think it's good that glasgow is finally getting a kind of snippet of media attention that it deserves on these issues want more like this subscribe to contra radio on our soundcloud itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscott.com.